let's get into it with part two of our episode on pre-hospital and transport medicine with Tyler Christofoli and Sam Ireland, who are in the midst of the transport from hell. Yep, there it is. All right, so uh, we carry O positive blood. Um, because blood. We, yeah, because we can't get O negative right now. So I'm going to take that, and I'm going to start running that in. Now, um, I have a Q-flow uh, blood warmer, fluid warmer that I run that through. So I'm going to set that up and make sure I get a baseline temperature. Um, we're going to run that into the, uh, I'll probably run that into the 20 gauge that I have, hoping it, it's, it's running okay. I don't know. I may find that I move my levofed over to that 20. Is that, tw- is that 20 gauge in the AC? That's in the AC. Seems to be working okay. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm fine with moving my levofed to a peripheral IV. I got it's on it's on the left arm, which is right where I sit, and so I can watch that and make sure it doesn't infiltrate. So I'll switch that over and put the blood actually in the IO in case this guy opens up and I need to give him a lot more. Um, I'm gonna start running in that blood over gravity, running through the the warmer, and uh, we'll consider uh, possibly doing TXA um, for this indication we probably have to call medical control through our, our radio and see if they want us to give TXA but it's something that we could think about okay so you start running in blood how much are you going to give or how much do you have to give yeah our units are typically like 250 mls 300 mls depending on the donor <laughs> and, and you carry one yeah we just carry one unit of whole blood okay so you're running in a unit of blood are you giving other fluid as well um not normally so uh, I'll probably just running in the blood at this point. And he's already gotten a lot of other fluid. So I'm just worried about giving him blood. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about the other fluid right now. The other thing I uh, I usually do, like right off the first unit, which, you know, it's probably not the most popular thing, but I like to give a gram of calcium. Uh, we carry got calcium gluconate. Uh, I, I prefer calcium chloride, but I'll usually give a gram of that somewhere around that first unit. Uh, just because of the ionized potassium or the ionized calcium being binded to the citrate in the blood that I'm giving, so I don't. I, I think historically they used to say you wait like three units before. I don't really see any badness that occurs from giving it right away. So I would say you're right. I mean that's my practice too in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean people will be like, oh my God, you can't, it's so funny how many people think calcium drops potassium levels. And it's like, no, it just protects the heart from all the crap. You know, it sets up a, a protective milieu around the heart. So I'm okay with giving that. One thing I have found though, is you got to give that calcium slow. I've seen people push it fast and I've seen bradycardia happen more than once from somebody slamming calcium. So I, I push it slow. And the other thing that's nice about pushing it slow is it, uh, it doesn't hurt as much if you have an IV that you can run that into. I don't want to give it through the same line, though, as the blood. Not that I think it's going to clot, but, you know, meta-analysis. I think We're running couple... out of lines quick here. Yeah, I know. Dude. Well, you know what? Let's. He's got another shoulder, man. Let's, throw <laughs> yeah, another... let's just do that. <laughs> All right. So you screw in a second IO. You're running in this unit of blood. Um and he seems to like it. His heart rate is coming down to the 110s, 120s, and you have his map up in the 60s or so. So you're um, you're sort of wiping off the sweat and checking your trousers, and um, maybe five, ten minutes later, 
here we you go. look up again, and <laughs> his rhythm has transitioned from uh, this sinus tachycardia he was in to something more rapid. It's about in the 180s now. Uh, it has a wide complex. You can't really appreciate if it's totally regular or not, and y you're not really sure if it has P waves or not. Um, the blood pressure has now dropped again. It's maybe like 55 over 30. Uh, it has a really hard time picking it up, to be honest. Uh, but you do feel a pulse. What are you thinking now? So he has a pulse. Probably is it, I'm assuming it's weak with that pressure. And we have a wide, complex, can't tell if it's regular, irregular tachycardia. What's his mental status? So I guess he's intubated right now. I forgot about he that. He remains unresponsive. And his yeah. last potassium was like 6.3. And then we did give him blood as yeah. well. We did give some calcium, but yeah. it might not, not be enough if he's got like a hyperkalemic issue going on right now. Yeah, in, in this, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to charge up my, yeah. my, uh, my charge of my ventilator. Charge up my monitor, <laughs> uh, synchronize shock at 100 joules, and uh, see how much love that gets me. So what rhythm are we shocking, or do you care? Yeah, if it's a wide, complex tachycardia, I'm going to assume it's VTAC until proven otherwise. Okay. Yeah, especially if it happened abruptly. Was there yeah. any like precipitating uh, PVCs or premature beats, or did we did we watch this like gradually? We weren't even watching the monitor, man. We were doing IOs <laughs> and all this other stuff. I'm yeah. assuming we just all of a sudden look over. That's usually how it happens. You just look over. <laughs> And you see uh, that you're in a wide complex tachycardia. And I don't think that's the time to do a 12 lead and, and try to see if you think this is a truly VTAC or an SVT with a Barrage Um He's already intubated and he's sedated. Let's light him up. Yeah. How it happened was you were looking at your watch to see how much longer this is going to go on. And then you look yeah. up and say, what the hell is that? <laughs> so an abrupt change. We're saying we're going to go with an abrupt change. All right. I'm clear. You're clear. BSI precautions. So you're doing synchronized cardioversion uh, with how many joules? Yeah, 100, 100 joules. Okay. And are you sedating for this? No, he's, he's already, already sedated. Okay. All right. So you shock him once, and you seem to have no real effect. It doesn't slow. It doesn't convert to anything else. Doesn't slow. It doesn't convert to anything else. Sam, give him another gram of calcium. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it's... It could be it's, we're in between sine wave and and VTAC. Yeah, right and I'm now, it, we're so. checking. We still have a pulse, Brandon. You seem to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <good>. All right. <laughs> <laughs> is the SpO2 still reading at this time? It is. Yeah. Okay. We're good. Um. Yeah, I would say another gram of calcium, and if that, we'd probably go up on our up on our cardio version dose honestly if that didn't work yeah usually I'd, i don't go up, you know if it's irregular i start at did we say it was regular or he said you he couldn't said tell mostly... it, yeah it's too fast to tell right so i mean you, you could it could be irregular. it doesn't look like a torsade so i'm not seeing it twisting and turning you see no twisting okay yeah let's let's try another uh, I'm going to try another 100 joules. Make sure the pad placement looks right. I went anterior, posterior with that. Um, and I'll try another 100 joules okay. synchronized. So you try again, and you uh, you give him another gram of calcium. Are you are you bolusing this? The calcium glucose? Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, no, this is calcium chloride that we took. Oh, so you had, okay. You you made yeah. off with some calcium chloride. Yeah, because I don't want to give them. Th- yeah. yeah. It's something we put in our pocket on the way out. <laughs> okay. So you give some calcium and you shock them once more. And uh, the rhythm kind of stutters and then it seems to settle into something a little different. Um, it slows down a little bit. It's maybe in the 150s, 160s now. Um, and it looks irregular. Really, it looks like AFib now with RVR. It's got a narrow complex. Um, but he is still hypotensive. You have him maybe in the 50s over 30s or 40s or so. Now what? All right, so how much blood is in now? You've given the entire unit. All right, so we've given the entire unit, so we can't give any more blood. He's still hypotensive. We're going to start hook back up our uh, our fluids. we got to consider that uh, he's his preload is drop down because he's he's tachycardic now um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that slowing down the rate is going to increase the cardiac output uh, this could be a rate that he needs to keep up whatever pressure he has so our uh, levofed is at 10 mics right now so I'm going to increase my levofed to 15 mics and since the blood is gone um, I'm going to since I'm getting up higher with my dosing on the Levo, I'm probably going to switch that back over to my IO and, and let that run. I'm playing uh, musical chairs with that Levo fed, but because I don't have a good central line in yet. What do you think? Just a little Sam? bit more about that rhythm. So are we, are we saying that it is AFib with RVR? That's how it looks. You don't see any P waves. It looks irregularly irregular, and it is a narrow complex now. Okay. Yeah, so what I'm thinking probably happened here is he's losing some cardiac output because he, he's in a – his atriums aren't syncing up with his ventricles anymore. So he's missing out on that atrial kick preload. And so, especially with his rate, the way it is right now, he's losing off, he's losing out on preload from the atriums and he's also losing out on diastolic time. And so I'm thinking that's why his, uh, why we're seeing the blood pressure that we're seeing right now. And I don't think it, it's a very, with his blood pressure, the way it is, uh, it's a very risky game to try to slow that pulse down. Yeah, especially at, I mean, you're, you said 150. I'm assuming, it is it bouncing between like 120 and 150, or are we glancing between 150 and like 180 or so? The latter. Okay, so it okay. is getting up higher. Um, so it probably can be a cause, the primary cause of his hypotension at this at this time because of that rate. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's important to think about the fact that he is bleeding internally. And so with every beat that he exerts is he's losing a little bit of blood wherever that, that bleeding is. So, you know, it's, I'm probably going to get slack for this, but to dial in precision control of an atrial fibrillation without giving something like amiodarone, which has an unexpected drop, I kind of like Esmolol for this. Uh, because I can control my heart rate exactly where I want it to be. So I'm going to probably start, at, I'm not, not going to say probably, I'm going to start Esmolol. Um, I'll do a loading dose of my uh, 500 uh, micrograms per kilo, and then I'm going to run a drip at 50 mics per kilo per minute. All right. So you bolus him Esmolol and you start the drip, and his rate slows down to about 130, 140, as maybe as high as 150. Okay. You seem to get a small increase in your blood pressure. You, you get his map to about 60. And then it seems to downtrend after that. So you, you keep him dialed in at about that rate, 
but his blood pressure kind of drifts down after. And then maybe five, eight minutes after that, um, you see his rhythm convert again into what looks like Frank VTech. It's a wide complex regular rhythm at about 200. Now you go and feel his pulse and you don't think there is one. All right, he's already got the pads on. Charge up to 200 joules. Shock, I reach behind my seat and I have a Lucas device. Sam starts doing compressions after Which that was, break. by the way, something that we would probably already think think of at this point was putting that uh, strap or that, that piece behind his back in case we had to, to put that on quickly. It's true, but in reality, I don't think, unless, you know, you're picking up a DKA patient, that's usually not a patient you're putting a backboard on. Uh, when I say the backboard, I just mean the backplate on the Lucas. You know, we pick up a STEMI who's got a wide complex and looks like garbage. That's somebody that we just put the backplate on. But I'm guessing if we're, if we're going to say that this is as practical as possible, maybe, you know, after the first time we shocked them, I agree, we probably would start unbuckling the lucas but uh, we're one of the <laughs> we're one of the few programs that actually flies with the lucas device and it's great because doing compressions in the back of a helicopter is horrible so we throw on that lucas device we make sure the buttons are facing towards us uh, just because of the layout of our aircraft and we start doing those chest compressions after that first shock and sam's just doing manual ones until i can get that that out from behind me okay so as soon as you can get him hooked up to the Lucas, you're going to hand over compressions to that. Yeah, and then and then the other thing I'm doing at that situation is I'm throwing on a, an ITD rescue pod uh, between the ventilator and the patient's airway, or endotracheal tube, or now it's a supraglottic, supraglottic tube. And I'm turning my uh, pressure sensitivity all the ways up so that way uh, it doesn't trigger. I'm basically turning that off so that way the compressions aren't triggering the ventilator to give breaths. I'm setting the ventilator at like 12 breaths a minute and tidal volume of, or I'll, I'll set the pressure control to like 50, 60, crank it up. And putting it on 100% oxygen? Correct, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and the PEEP, I mean, the PEEP can be zero at that point because I'm putting the impedance threshold device on just to help uh, optimize the, the recoil phase. Okay. And you're shocking him again? Yeah, when the time comes. Uh, this is synchronized? So he's, he's yeah he's Vita. I don't care. I mean you it could yeah it doesn't matter. I mean yeah. are you gonna you can leave the sync on if you want, but yeah we gonna... don't have to remember to do it. I I actually emailed the AHA about this and asked why we can't just synchronize shock people who don't have a pulse. And the answer was just well it may increase like cognitive bandwidth and take too much time to think about. But there's nothing bad about it that occurs. So I don't care. That's not something either way. Not a hill I'll die on either way. Okay. Any other meds, fluids, anything else you can be giving? Uh, no, you know we gave the blood, we gave the calcium. We, uh, I, I'm probably gonna check his sugar again. I just that's routine. I'll keep doing that. And this is probably the point in the flight where I just start saying everything we've done, because it's so easy to get mixed up on something that you were going to do and then something changed and you forgot to do it. So I'll be like, all right. So we have a supraglottic airway in. Uh, we're doing chest compressions. Uh, we shocked. We got. X, Y, Z until we have to shock again. Uh, we have the levofed still running. I'm okay with that running right now. Um, I have the, uh, the ultrasound. If I wanted to get a look at the heart in between on our rhythm checks and uh, our epi administration is, is Q10 now that we're giving it. Um, I don't know. 
I don't know how I feel about giving Epi. I'm already running Lebafed in right now. Uh, the, once he went into the VTAC, we shocked him a couple times. Is he still coding right now, Brandon? He hasn't. We haven't gotten a pulse. You're at a, you're at about round two CPR. Okay. We could consider amiodarone for the patient if he's in sustained VTAC, I guess. What do you think? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah. yeah. 300 yeah, of amiodarone. A, yeah. Okay. So you give him a bolus of amio, and you're in your third round of CPR when uh, you see a spike in your end title. And you pause, and you, you see him with a rhythm again. And it seems to be 140s, 150s. It looks like that AFib again. But he has a pulse, and he has a pressure with a map of about 50. And right around now, your helicopter is settling out on the roof of the receiving hospital. That was only an hour? Man, it seemed to go by <laughs> so quickly. <laughs> you thank you know, whatever deities you prefer, and you, you roll him out, and you get him um, into their ED there. Tell me about how you're transferring care of this patient. Is there anything that you're trying to ensure? Is there anything you're trying to convey to the receiving team? How are you making this seamless? I feel like we had the DKA stuff a little bit under control before you throw us the, threw us the curveball with, uh, with the vomiting. And so I think uh, maybe we would save that for the end. So maybe just the important stuff up front, like, why we had to place an advanced airway, how he's been handling that, um, big rhythm changes, you know, very recent medications that we've had to administer, what's currently being infused into the patient and current vital signs. And then you kind of round back to, and, you know, this is what our current epoch is, and, and this is what, you know, what we picked him up for originally and, and go from there. But I feel like the changes in, in flight are definitely at the forefront of of transferring that care and then we round back to the DKA most likely. The hardest part is going to be explaining why we didn't give them a report while we were flying there because <laughs> we were we were so busy doing stuff I to see their faces as we walk in. Yeah, that would be an update I like in to... flight. Like if, if you're coding somebody <laughs> in in transport if you're on ground or in flight that's an that's an update for sure because you're not usually taking them to, you know, an ED, you're, you're usually planning on taking them to like an ICU. And so if you have an update like that, if you're def if you're diverting somewhere else i mean you're giving an update when that stuff happens even if it's a five second like hey by the way this patient is uh currently coded and we're doing that right now so they should have should have anticipated something like that if we didn't really screw up and not tell anybody yeah i mean there's a lot to unpack with this patient and it's going to be hard it's probably going to be one of those patients where i give my report and then i go out to make the cot and then i run back in and remember something i need to tell them and then i run back out and then i go back in and tell them something so i like to try to frame it as a story and so i'll be like all right so here's a story we picked up this guy it seemed like a pretty straightforward dka patient a little bit more of a drop in glucose than we were expecting but nothing crazy nothing to get worked up about um, we rechecked his potassium in flight and it was six. So it's not dropping a lot and he's got kidney disease. So, uh, th that could be, he, maybe he's holding on to some of that. He's not getting rid of it. We did not have to start potassium, but here's the, uh, the kicker. Uh, he did decompensate blood pressures kept dropping. He started throwing up. He was not able to protect his airway. Uh, we did start running in blood and we did a levofed assisted transfusion. Uh, we put in a supraglottic airway. You guys would probably want to think about switching that out to an endotracheal tube. Uh, but with uh, flight, we had to, we decided to opt with just a supraglottic. And he's saturating fine right now. He's in the 90%, uh, 90%, 90 percentage area. And we have a blood pressure 
Uh, Map's a little bit lower than we'd like, but he is bleeding internally. And so um, I'm not trying to get his blood pressure super high. I'm all right with his map being right around 50 to 60 um, if he's bleeding internally. And, and, uh, and then I would always make them a copy of our, our last epoch that we got in our 12 lead once we got a pulse back. Is there anything that you are hoping will get done uh, expeditiously at the hospital? Are there things that you would have liked to do that you're not equipped for? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm probably going to run. I'd like to give him more blood. I'm, I'm assuming he's lost way more than the 300 I gave him. Yeah, it's so. probably going the other way down his GI tract, too. So we got to assume that it's more substantial than we've even seen, which is already substantial. And that's something I'll, I'll pre-alert them on when I give a report is I'll let them know, listen, you know, this, we're going to need your rapid transfusion protocol and you, you're going to want to have blood ready to go. And that way they can, uh, there's no delay with that. They know right away that we're coming in with a patient who has an active GI bleed and, and they can be ready to put that on a level one right away as soon as we come in. Well, you successfully unload yourself of this patient. And uh, in fact, what happens with them is they, they do massively transfuse them. And um, he undergoes endoscopy by GI, or they find a, a rapidly bleeding gastric ulcer. They're able to clip and cauterize it, and they get him stabilized. Uh, three days later, he's extubated in the ICU, and uh, he spends another week and a half there with assorted complications of critical illness and is eventually discharged back into your catchment area. So, great work, team. I thought this was a 30-minute podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that maybe we just made it last that long with all our talking. <laughs> yeah, this is probably going to be two parts. Uh, looking back, is there anything that you would have done differently or that in retrospect um, you might have wanted to change your uh, perspective on the case? We were behind the eight ball when we I, – I think probably we both thought about that 120 gauge – um yep that that was an oversight i mean we definitely should have we definitely should have gotten more lines at the get-go there's no way that that patient almost no matter what happens will will only need one 20 gauge iv so that was silly of us um i felt like the bipap settings were appropriate i think that the the sugar titration and the isotonic bicarb all of that was was good um i don't know if there's anything that we could have done to identify his cause of shock earlier like he and i don't i don't think that this is somebody until he started vomiting that really screamed like protect my airway i don't i don't know if going back even knowing what we know now like there there would have been any warning signs that like we had to put an advanced airway into that patient so i don't know what do you think tyler i agree the only thing i would go back and change is the iv just throw that in um, but I probably still would have ended up doing an IO just because he's now intubated and I can run that. And that's pretty much a central line for me. So I don't mind running levofed through a peripheral IV, but blood sometimes it just seems like it, it just takes a while to get in. And when you're running that to gravity, I'm not going to put it under a pressure bag or anything like that. So I, I like to run blood in through a humeral head IO. Oh, the other thing is we found out later, we, we could have investigated a little bit more at the sending facility if we would have found out that his hemoglobin was nine i think is maybe what you said it was somewhere ten was it ten or nine brandon initially i think it was nine yeah something like that that may have prompted a little bit more investigation um so that that could have been a, a conversation like 
does, has he has he vomited? You know, has he had any bloody stool? Has he had any? Has he did he complain of anything else before he was his loopy and stuff like that? And so, and did he have abdominal pain? Is his is his belly really stiff? You know, like those would have been questions that that would have been relevant. And, and two, you know, it, in hindsight, we may have just chalked it up too well. They gave him four liters of saline. Um, so, so maybe that has something to do with it, but it probably would have prompted some other questions. So maybe a little bit more. We we did ask for the chem panel because we were really focused on that DKA, but we could have we could have asked for a, a CBC as well. That probably would have been smart. So, is it fair to say that your goal when you're picking these patients up is to um, get them as stabilized as possible and to prepare for whatever you can prepare for, but granting that there are some things that you're not going to be able to foresee. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we uh, there's certain things that are time sensitive. You know, if we come in for uh, a patient, a STEMI patient, whether you want to call it an OMI or STEMI or whatever, um, that that's a typically like a 10 minute scene. Like we're jumping in, we're taking the patient, we're putting everything on our on our pumps in the aircraft typically uh, we're clamping off heparin you know maybe keep the nitro going and then we're booking it but when you go in for a, an icu patient or a dka patient um, you're already giving them the insulin right i mean you already have what they need going so there's no need to fly out the door so you can spend a little bit more time to start that iv uh, to get that labs to make sure that you're bouncing ideas off of the physician um, and then definitely make sure you're grabbing potassium and you're grabbing a liter of D5. Uh, we carry calcium gluconate, so I always ask for a couple of boxes of calcium chloride. And the nurses can unlock the code cart and just throw me some and I can take those with me. So all the things that you pre-think before you actually have to leave. And, uh, and that really makes for a smooth flight. Uh, particularly in our aircraft, we fly a Koala 119. Um, the patient's right side is against the door. And that's hard because it's, if you need to start an IV on that side, it makes it difficult. So the logistics are typically if I walk into a room, I'm going to start an IV on that patient's right arm because I can easily start one on the left arm while we're flying because that's where I'm sitting. But the other arm, it's just the little nuances of stuff like that that uh, you got you to pre-think and plan out. All right. Well, that was really interesting. I I. I was interested to hear how similarly your guys' approach is to how we might do things in the ICU in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I, I almost feel like the, the main differences are the interventions you can offer just because of what's available to you. For instance, in a case like this, I'd be giving more blood probably, and you just don't have more blood. Um, and on, on the diagnostic side, it, it almost seems more similar because in a really crashing patient like this, you don't really have time or the opportunity for a lot of advanced diagnostics. Ultrasound, I'm sure, which you guys are fortunate to have, but uh, I mean, you're not waiting around for a lot of labs or doing a lot of scans and things because the patient's not tolerating it. So I think we're all just kind of going on what we have at the bedside. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see if there was any spot where we went somewhere where uh, your thoughts were different, where you would divert and maybe do something uh, different depending on, I should say, uh, contrasting that with your experience and your atmosphere. Um, you know, if I think that somebody is has a massive GI bleed like this, I would probably be giving them more volume. Um, certainly focusing on blood, but I, I would you know definitely allow them some crystalloid kind of to to bridge them over. Um, I, you know, we would try to probably intubate early, but if, I think that's a difference in the environments. We have more kind of hands and resources available to help out with that sort of thing. So the patient had already gotten at that point like five liters and there's 
you know, diffuse, you said diffuse B lines. I'm curious, what, what is your cutoff? If you had to put your feet to the fire, how much fluid are you going to give? And just until the blood pressure gets where you want it or. Yeah. I mean, it's which tool are you using to support the blood pressure? Are you using more pressors or using more volume? I think a patient like this is somebody who got a fair amount of volume up front, but probably needed that because they've been in DKA. And I don't know if that sort of counts toward our current fluid balance now that we're treating something new because maybe they came into the hospital five liters down just from dehydration um, now they do look like they have that's a good maybe point a little yeah. pulmonary edema which you know in this particular case um, he did have some kind of pre-existing heart failure um, but i mean if that's what you come in with and then you develop this new problem you still have to support the new problem i think so I, it's always kind of a dilemma for me are you do you treat hemorrhagic shock with pressors or crystalloid given that you don't really want to do either. Uh, I often end up with a little bit of presser and then, you know, as little crystalloid as I can while you're waiting for blood or in between blood or whatever. Uh, what do you think, Brian? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would agree pretty much. Um, like I said, like you said, mentioned, I would give blood. Um, I would be quicker to intubate him. But again, all those are sort of restrictions of the environment, right? So when you say intubate, like intubate at the hospital quicker or intubate in flight instead of putting a super I mean, if in. this was a patient in my ICU or my ID, I would intubate them early. So I was actually going to ask you guys, talk a little bit, if you would, um, about the decision to intubate or not before you leave. Because I feel like we get a fair, uh, especially in the neuro ICU, we get a fair number of people who come in who are intubated quote for flight um, for this sort of fear that they're potentially going to lose their airway in flight. And, and there are people who in with 2020 hindsight, I would not have intubated outside of yeah, putting them yeah. on an aircraft. So I, I a hundred percent agree that in flight, we have a very low threshold to intubate and I actually don't think it's appropriate. I think that there's a lot of patients that would do just fine with you sitting them up and watching their airway, which we are, we're sitting right next to them. And this whole, well, you know what, maybe they can't lay flat, so we have to intubate them. Or, oh, uh, you know what, there's a fear that they could decompensate in flight, so we, we can't, we gotta intubate them now. I, I just don't buy it. I, I see patients all the time that I pick up that I'm like, all right, you know what, this would probably be all right, he's not really answering questions appropriately. Maybe we need to intubate them. But I don't now. And I find that it's really, there's not a lot of badness that occurs. I've had to intubate a couple patients in flight. But the majority of the time, they do just fine. And, you know, I teach in one of my lectures about all the negative effects of intubating somebody. And especially somebody who's hypotensive. And so you, you got to maintain that gradient from your mean systemic filling pressure, you know, we'll say like your venous pressure up to your atrium. And if you take that gradient away and we increase positive pressure ventilation and then we decrease mean systemic filling pressure by giving something that relaxes the vessels, increases the compliance, uh, paralytics, and that patient's bleeding out or they're already hypotensive, you slowly lose that venous return gradient. And you got to weigh it out because negative pressure breathing, I call it God's presser, because when you take that negative breath and you bolus that, you can almost see it on ultrasound when the IVC comes up and it's pushing that blood back to the heart. That is so beneficial for their cardiac output. 
And so switching them to positive pressure ventilation, uh, it's not benign. It comes with a whole new series of things that you got to do and especially keeping them sedated. And, you know, everybody, oh, we got to keep them paralyzed and sedated. You pick up a patient who is seizing. Now, how do you even know they're not seizing anymore? Because now they're sedated and they're paralyzed. I get it. And I, I, you know, I think you can argue it from both aspects. My personal practice is to try non-invasive, try a nasal cannula, sit there with a suction tucked underneath their pillow if they need it. And, and then only intubate if you truly think that this patient needs to be intubated. Yeah, I like that you guys kind of use the response to, um, you know, positive pressure ventilation through a mask to gauge how that was going to affect the hemodynamics uh, on the ventilator. Because you're right. I mean, there shouldn't be any particular difference unless you're giving more pressure with one. Yeah, and, and when you are transitioning from that, you know, spontaneous to, like, Tyler actually just gave a lecture today. Did you give that pushing and pulling lecture today, Tyler? Yeah. And so he talks about how, like, when, when they're uh, – when they're using that negative inspiratory pressure, you know, the, they're pulling that, that chest open, they're pulling that diaphragm down, they're generating that negative force. There's a great pressure gradient for that venous flow to come in, excellent preload. But, you know, if you use the same amount of, you know, uh, pressure support, uh, for instance, when they're on BiPAP and you transfer them over, now they're intubated, they have a supraglottic airway in, and, and you go ahead and use that same pressure, that same inspiratory pressure, you know, let's say 10 over 5. You're just not getting the amount of tidal volume that you are because now you're pushing that diaphragm. You're pushing that chest wall out. And so that's why I say always go up on your pressure control versus your pressure support. And so that's you know that, that has huge implications. So while you might be like, well, he was doing ventilating great on 10 over 5 spontaneously, of course it's going to have to go up once you once you intubate them and you, you try to, to mitigate that and use as little pressure as possible. But there's always going to be some you know, some increase that you have to go up when you decide to, to take their muscle tone away. And that's why spontaneous, if you can keep them on a spontaneous mode when they're intubated or have a supraglottic airway, that's, that's why that's so great, less pressure. So, well, I was just going to say, it's interesting that you mentioned seizures because I think uh, I see that a lot. And I see that in the hospital too with the neurology uh, guys who will call us to the to patients on the floor who are in status or quasi-status who say, you know, we're giving benzos, we need to intubate them. And it's surprising to me, well, not to me, it's surprising to a lot of people how much benzos a patient, especially a patient who's seizing, can take uh, and not compromise mm-hmm. their airway. So I think that's another thing is people say, well, they're seizing, they need an airway. We're giving them benzos, they need an airway. And that's not necessarily always the case. Yeah, yeah, I totally, totally agree. You know, dentists sedate people all the time with just suction sitting next to their head. <laughs> and they got these people zonked out and they keep them breathing. And I, I guess I don't like laying patients flat to begin with. And not that every intubation, intubated patient has to be flat, but it was funny. I jumped in the ambulance on an intercept the other day. Uh, we did a scene flight. They had a, a patient that was elderly, had a pelvic fracture, open femur fracture, and we jump in the back and the blood pressure is, you know, 60 over 40 and the patient's unresponsive. And the, they're getting ready to push their medications to intubate the patient. And in my head, I'm just seeing, all right, this venous pressure and this right atrial pressure are about to meet their, each other and we're going to lose all flow. And I'm like, all right, did you guys give uh, that patient anything to extricate them? I'm like, yeah, we gave, you know, we gave, uh, you know, 300 or whatever, a ketamine to get them out or 100, 200 a ketamine. And I'm like, all right, so this is a GCS3 case situation where the patient's unresponsive because they got ketamine or it could just be because they're hypotensive. 
let's not intubate this patient. Let's put a pelvic binder on, Slishman uh, traction splint for the femur. Let's start giving blood. And I'm totally cool sitting there and just, if she's got some secretions, sitting there and suctioning them. But I do not want to intubate this patient. That's how patients die. And what do we do? We go back to the, the base and we just say, oh, yeah, I had a really sick patient today. No, that's something that we actually created. So uh, the resuscitate before you aviate <laughs> or you uh, the intubate, I think that it's important. Sometimes you can't get them right where you want, but you really got to weigh out the pros and the uh, cons of, of intubating. Any final thoughts by anyone? What do you guys think about the Esmolol? Yeah, what do you guys think about the Esmolol? Uh, I like Esmolol, actually. How did you uh, know I was going to say Esmolol? Because it's been on my <laughs> mind, too. I think... For the reasons you mentioned, right? It's it's quick on, it's quick off. Uh, you know, I'm. I mean, again, that's another thing. I feel like in cases like that, I'm quick to give beta blockade, uh, and patient and and nurses and people look at me and go, hey, you know, I don't know, the, you know, that patient's blood pressure is soft or or whatever. But the you know the point is controlling their rate is going to help their blood pressure. So Esmol is even better, right? And give a little Esmol if it doesn't work and bottoms them out. You go, oh, okay wait a second it'll come back up yeah and as well drip is great um i don't feel like we use it very much i think it's better than pushing amio or diltiazem and then being like oh i don't know how low the heart rate is going to go there was a study in 2019 that looked at Esmolol for controlling heart rates in the ICU, and they were able to keep that heart rate. I want to say it was between like 70 and like 85 i mean it was very precise in patients that were uh, in the ICU, it wasn't AFib, but it was, you know, whatever. And, and that was uh, after 24 hours of resuscitation, then they put them on a, an Esmolol drip. And I did a podcast with Josh Farkas on treating AFib in the patient with uh, like septic shock. And you walk in and you're like, should I treat this AFib or should, is it compensating or is it an innocent bystander? And he said something that was really interesting. He said that, um, you know, if you drop the, let's just say you drop the rate from uh, 120 to, or I should say you drop it from 120 to 60, it's, it's very unlikely that your cardiac output is going to double. So it's not like your cardiac output is going to increase by the same increment at which you decrease the heart rate. And you, you lose some of that compensatory response. And so I don't want to drop it that low. You know, somebody who's hypotensive shouldn't have a heart rate of 60, but they also shouldn't have a heart rate of 180. And so I feel like I did a blog called Precision Control uh, with Esmolol for, uh, for AFib. And I think that this, uh, there's enough evidence to support that that's not a bad move in that situation. And then for the same reasons you mentioned, Brian, that it's fast off as well if I need to turn it off. I think it's uh, potentially clever. Um, I guess my concern in a case like this would be the combination with you know, hemorrhagic shock. Um, and it, it just takes kind of a, a bold hand to, to beta block someone like that. And I guess the, if what I would probably lean towards is maybe starting with just sedation, something like maybe a little fentanyl here and there, see if I can kind of defray some of their their sympathetic tone that way. Um, and then if I really think that their rate would be better lower, I would, I would probably do amio. And the appeal there would be not just the slowing, but the you know, potential for more rhythm control. Um, if you can settle out some of the, 
kind of hyperactivity of the heart. Because um, I think that in someone like this, um, their potential for more arrhythmias is probably high, and none of them are going to do them any favors. In probably even AFib. I mean, this is probably someone who you would like to have their atrial kick. Um, in particular, again, he has a little, maybe a little bit of diastolic heart failure. You know, he, he needs some help filling probably. Um, and I guess I tend to find that amio is not too troubling as far as its um, unpredictability. I mean, we're usually bolusing, you know, over 10 minutes or so outside of a rest, uh, maybe rebolusing as needed. But I guess I, I tend to like the, that background aneurysmic effect. Uh, it'll just be something you have going on, making it less likely that your day is going to be ruined later. Yeah, it was interesting to hear um, that I was talking when I, in that podcast with Farkas. He mentioned that uh, in the ICU, they use amiodarone all the time for AFib. And in the ED, he's like, you'll almost always see people using diltiazem. And I thought that was interesting because in, typically that's not a go-to for AFib for us in pre-hospital. It's not something that we're originally taught. And there's really nothing that... I can't think of any guidelines that support that within the EMS community. So I, I, it makes sense. Um, but I, I do like, I don't like pushing something and then seeing, I guess I, don't, I shouldn't say I don't, I don't have enough experience pushing amiodarone and knowing how low that's going to decrease my heart rate. Usually I'm giving that in ventricular rhythms and I get a pulse back, but I haven't seen how that works in AFib. So I'm not opposed to it, but I use Esmolol all the time when I'm transporting uh, thoracic aneurysms and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess it, it's all in your what you're used to, and I think it's the the environment too. The ED treats a lot of primary AFib. They're cardiac patients, and cardizone works great for that. We see a lot of AFib secondary to critical illness, and for that, maybe a little bit of beta blocker if tolerated. But if they're too unstable, amio is usually a nice solution because it's pretty hemodynamically stable in the majority of patients. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have liked, yeah, diltiazem would totally be out for me. I mean, that's a benzothiazepine, so that's going to that's gonna also vasodilate that patient, and I feel like we're trying to do the opposite, and so I don't I don't want to vasodilate that patient. One, one plus I do see, because I was like, I was when you initially had said that about the AFib, I'm like, I wonder if he's trying to get us just to keep shocking this person <laughs> or what, you know, an unstable AFib. I'm like, are we just going to go up on these like, like pseudo synchronized cardio versions until we're trying to just like electrocute this person like endlessly. Um, but the other thing that, that was nice about the, the Esmolol, it's also going to block that beta two. And so if we're, tr we're trying to get a little bit more squeeze in the periphery, uh, we might be able to get a little bit more squeeze in the periphery and at the, at simultaneously get a little bit more diastolic filling. So yeah, the, uh, the arrhythmias didn't really start until we started the Levafed and you so know what Levafed does have I believe so. Yeah. The beta properties of the leave effect. Because I remember originally I was thinking this could be some sort of sepsis that's been exacerbated or that DKA that was exacerbated by sepsis. And so I started the Levafed. And so if you're giving Esmolol, you are blocking the uh, the beta effects of the Levafed. And it's essentially like you're giving phenylephrine. Not exactly. But, you know, I, I'm left with some of the alpha effects from the Levafed. Um, so I'm not opposed to amio. Just I don't have the heuristics built up with it yet. All right. Well, we're running a little long, so we better wrap it up. Um, thank you so much for joining us, you guys. Um, we'll uh, put a link to what these characters have been up to with Foamfrat. They've been doing some really cool stuff with uh, paramedic refreshers and things like that. So you should check it out if you can. Um, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, guys.